the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thursday, 20th of July. Trust you're having a great summer. Kids are home and... <laughs> Probably driving you nuts, but that's okay, folks. Uh, Mom and Dad, uh, we'll be back into the fall before you know it. Just got to pray real hard. <laughs> used to enjoy. Used to back when I was a kid. There was summer vacation lasted between about the midpoint of June all the way through the Tuesday after Labor Day. Now they get off a little later and they go back a lot earlier. So I guess in some respects. Modern-day parents in that regard have it a bit easier than uh, than certainly my folks did. I, having to deal with me on more than a week or two in a row out <laughs> of school would have been painful enough as it is. Well, at any rate, I digress. Good afternoon. Good to have you with us today. Lots to talk about on the program. Uh, elections are seemingly always top of mind these days, uh, not always because we wish it so. In fact, I know a lot of folks would wish they would just sort of get elected, disappear for a year, then maybe come back and start to talk about it. But now it seems as if from the moment they're elected, they're running for re-election. That certainly is true in the House with just a 24-month cycle in each term. But even presidential elections seem to go on and on and on. But talking about the broader issue of elections, things have changed dramatically since the founding of our nation. A little historical perspective before we get to our guests. Did you know that early on, I'm talking colonial America, only property holders were eligible to vote? Post-1776, the voting right was extended to all males, excluding slaves, of course. And then in 1870, the 15th Amendment gave the rights to African Americans to vote. It took all the way up to 1920 before women were allowed the right to grow to uh, to vote and uh, that of course passage of the 19th amendment and then in 1964 the 24th amendment finally eliminated the so-called Jim Crow era poll tax 1971 we reduced the age from 21 down to 18 now, of course, in the United States, one need be a U.S.-born or naturalized citizen of 18 years or older. 23 states still do not allow you to vote if you are a convicted felon while still serving time. But given how broad the allowance is, and given the nature of our elections these days, do we need to think about maybe creating other forms and standards, not necessarily designed to restrict certain classes of people, per se, from voting, as many of the previous laws did, but whether or not it makes sense to create a higher standard, a bar, so to speak, that folks have to be able to meet in order to be able to not just vote, 
but vote intelligently. And those two sometimes are at loggerheads. Let's talk about what all of this means and whether or not, as we talk about candidates as well in relationship to voting, what sort of things we ought to be looking at that qualify them to get our vote. Bob Zadek joins us now, best-selling author. He is a lawyer, a CPA, for many, many years, hosted a wildly popular nationally syndicated radio talk show, and uh, joins us now to discuss the issue of voting, voting rights, voting laws, and voting for your favorite candidate, or perhaps not-so-favorite candidate. Bob, as always, an honor and a privilege to have you join us. Thank you so much, Craig. And, Craig, when you have teed up this evening's topic, you should have given the guests a warning that this is going to be a 24-hour show. (laughs) Uh, So um, you you may have to take control of the control booth at gunpoint, but nobody is going to have access to this network for the next 24 hours so we can cover this subject correctly. Now that we've taken the business out of the way, we've taken care of that. This is a 24-hour tar- telethon, kind of, like Jerry Lewis used to have, remember him? Uh, and now we're going to hit today's topic. And today's topic is has so many components. We're talking about voting, voting by voters. And there are two components. Is it better for the country to have as many people eligible to vote as possible or is it worse for the country and maybe it's worse for the country but better for the voters because they get to vote or maybe it's bad for both so there's such there's so many core issues that that never get discussed about democracy and the right to vote and i'll i'll set it up where uh with the main topic you you posited for the audience is how does your audience how do you how do i how does anybody decide who to vote for what are the now if you were to ask the proverbial man in the street, person in the street. How do you decide who to vote for? They would, as a way to uh, to telegraph how careful they are, they would say, well, I look at intelligence, I look at honesty, I look at experience, I look at their ability to lead the country, I look at how they treated their family, I look at how they earned their money. And all of these values which we use to pick our friends and our mates and where we, how we socialize. But I wonder how much of that is true. It seems that people basically vote for their team's candidate. If they're Democrats, they vote for Democrats. If they're Republicans, they vote for Republicans. Which means why have elections at all? just told the country, are there more registered Democrats than Republicans? That's who the president is. They get to pick, almost like a parliamentary system. So we don't really, in this country, select presidents based upon the president or based upon the candidate. We do it based upon the political party. Now, that sounds like we're all 
just sheep and we're not very smart and not very careful, we'll hopefully have time that I will have us understand maybe by voting based upon party, we're doing the smart thing, but we'll go into that. So first, Craig, let's start. How do you think, how do you imagine, indeed, maybe share with your listeners, how do you pick a candidate? And don't give the virtual virtue, uh, signaling answer, give the real answer. How you pick a candidate? Do you give them an IQ test? Do you sit one-on-one? Do you see their honesty, their intelligence, their height, their weight, how do you do it? And we'll start there, and then how you think the audience does it, and then we'll go from there. Well, I'm going to imagine, Bob, there are probably some, I'm I'm hoping with this audience, which is a little bit uh, smarter than the average bear, as the saying goes, uses, I would hope, some of the criteria that I use. Now, I I will say on the altruistic side of the the equation here that uh, I will read candidates statements. Um, I certainly will take a look at a candidate in terms of their background, their history in politics, if they were in business prior to running, what kind of a business were they in, uh, what they might bring to the table by way of their resume or their CV, Uh, certainly if they've had some previous political experience, what their history of voting looks like on certain topics that I feel are extremely important. And then I suppose, too, if we all raise hand to God and are quite honest, There is a degree to which we'll think about, well, how does this candidate present? Meaning, do they seem to speak well on television? Are they well-spoken? Are they somebody that seems to be the kind of candidate that you would be proud to say, so-and-so was my senator, my governor, so on and so forth? Kind of going along the lines of uh, how well they look on television. And I think probably, while, while that is innately perhaps one of the worst ways to select a candidate. It's probably also one of the most frequent ways. And then sadly, I think we probably find a large percentage of people that when they take a look at the ballot and they start to vote, there is probably a good percentage of individuals that just say, I I don't know who any of these people are, but I feel as if I have an obligation to vote. And so I'm going to check the box against the name that I recognize or the name that I seem to feel the most comfortable with. So if you're an Italian, anybody has got an I at the end of their name, you check off the box, on and on the list goes. Probably not terribly scientific, and certainly at the end of the day, probably not the best approach when it comes to picking the brightest and best to lead our country. The problem is that um, for you to do a deep dive, let's say a really deep dive, you described, you looked at a lot of factors, and let's accept that. So you spend a fair amount of time, one would imagine, thinking about who to vote for. Now... That seems like you are the ideal citizen in a democracy, a smart, as informed as you can be, voter who focuses on the important stuff. But you know, Craig, that's, there's nothing, forgive me, there's nothing dumber than that. Why do I say that? You wake up in the morning, Craig, and you have... 14 hours or 16 hours of awake time for you to work on 
improving your life and the lives of your family and other people you care for. That's why you're alive. You want to have a good day. You want to have pleasure. You want your family to be cared for. You want to be safe. All these important things. You have 16 hours a day to do that. Now, I like to think that I spend every minute of the day improving my life, making myself more wealthy, hopefully, making my family safe and happy, and having some fun doing it. I like to think that's why I am awake. Why bother waking up? Now, if those are acceptable ways to spend your time, ask yourself, if you vote wrong, or if you vote right, what, are, what is the likelihood that your vote, your one vote, will affect how you live. We know elections affect how you live. Collectively, I am talking about the time Craig Roberts spends on his vote. Does it matter at all how you vote? It matters how the country votes, collectively. So therefore, your life, whatever you spend, is studying balance thinking about it, just talking to friends, whatever you spend in that activity, you are diverting your time from something that would benefit your life to something that cannot affect your life. You, in other words, most voters who do the opposite, spend no time thinking about elections, are behaving with what pollsters call uh, Rational ignorance. Normal. (laughs) That's right. They are stupid about voting because it makes no sense in terms of allocation of your time to be smart. Well, and I probably need to in the interest of, of full disclosure here, Bob, and then we're going to take a, a quick break because I don't want to interrupt you here. Uh, you know, in, in the in the interest of full disclosure, I have one of those jobs that kind of motivates me to be a bit of a researcher and to be a bit on top of these things. And so part of it goes hand in hand with the benefit of becoming a better informed voter because my job to a great extent, requires me to do so. But your point is a very valid one, and I, and I, and I will say an answer to that. All right, when the day comes that I'm no longer uh, seeing the side benefit of my day job playing into who I am as a voter, I, I would answer by, your question by saying this. Do I believe that my single vote alone makes that much of a difference? No, but we've certainly seen through past election cycles that collectively just a handful gathered together indeed can. But I think the other thing, too, and this is maybe perhaps a, a product of my my upbringing that I was taught to value my vote to cherish the opportunity of participation in democracy and so therefore it is perhaps at the end of the day uh, maybe not an earth-shattering vote that's going to swing an election one way or another but for me there's inherent value because I believe it's one of the precious aspects of what it means to be an American and what it means to live in a democracy and so part of the reason why I believe putting the time in and making the extra effort is because I believe there's important role that I play in the the self-governance of the nation. Okay, well, boy, with that altruistic, uh, if not self-serving <laughs> answer, uh, let's take a quick time out. Bob Zadek is with us tonight, best-selling author, CPA, lawyer. We're talking today about 
to vote, not to vote, why to vote? That is the question. Bob Zadek online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. More insights as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. A sense of obligation, certainly, from a citizenship viewpoint is a big motivator for me as to why I go into the uh, voting booth and do my thing every two years. What about you? We're discussing this with Bob Zadek and Bob offering some insights, not only in terms of the historical constitutional perspective, but many of the broader questions that maybe all of us need to be asking ourselves, Bob, in terms of why do we vote? Does it make a difference? And of course, as I hinted at in my opening remarks tonight, even the broader question is to who ought to be voting. One of the one of the big debates of recent days has been some communities that have said, well, maybe we need to extend voting rights to non-citizens in local elections when it comes to things like school board elections or reducing the voting age to 16? Well, the question is, who should have the right to vote? That, that is really two questions dressed up as one question. Why is it two questions? Because when you say should, who should have the right to vote? I have to come back with, I can't answer that question until I know what you're trying to accomplish. If the goal is to, if you conclude that people who live in this country and are citizens and aren't eliminated for certain very specific reasons, but merely by dint of their citizenship, they have the right to vote, then the issue is they get to vote because they have the right. If on the other hand, if on the other hand, you don't focus on the voter, but you focus on the country, then the country doesn't have an interest in having a broad right to vote among the whole population. That's neither good nor bad for the country but what is good for the country is that the people who have the right to vote are the people who are most likely to produce quality elected officials so one you say the goal is to have the best government the other is the goal is to be fair to citizens so you have to start there and then I know how to answer the question I would say there is no dispute. It's indisputable that to the extent that you limited voters to people who pass a citizenship test, pass an IQ test, have whatever the standards are, are informed. Whatever the standards are, one could design a limitation on the right to vote that would produce better, that's a slippery slippery concept, but I'm going to use it, better elected officials. People who are less likely to resort to their emotions and to ignorance. But how would this country feel if we had only certain people get to pick the president? Now, if that sounds un-American, let's remember that's the country the founders gave us. The founders gave us an electoral college, which never w- was carried out 
the purpose for which it was intended. But in theory, in theory, what the founders had in mind is that you and I, Craig, we're not smart enough to vote for president. So say the founders, and they are right. And therefore, we get to vote for people who will vote for president. In effect, we outsource the decision to others. Now, if that seems un-American, we do that now. We don't vote whether the country should be at war. We delegate that, that important decision, to a senator. So we outsource many important decisions right now because we're not smart enough and we don't choose to be smart enough. I don't want to study whether we should go to war. I'm at the time of trying to make a living and live my life. I don't want to study tax policy and antitrust law. So I say to, to some senator, I'm voting for you. You do that junk. I want to go have fun. You know, what's important about this, let me let me interrupt, Bob, because you're, you're making, I think, a critically important point here that I don't want it lost on listeners. And that is that of recent years, there has been, as I suggest, wanting to, for example, reduce the age to 16 to be an eligible voter. There seems to be for quite some time a bigger and bigger press on increasing the quantity of voters, that there's this sense that we need to have broader participation and so uh, lacking the ability to get every single eligible 18 year old to go to the polls let's see if we can get some eligible 16 and 17 year olds to go to the polls all with the spirit in mind of it's about the quantity it's about the quantity what what you're suggesting is from the very foundation of our nation the founding fathers likely recognize that not only do we not largely have time, and I think in modern day has proven a very limited interest, but that what it takes to really make that fully informed vote is so involved that perhaps what we need to be focusing on is instead of trying to just get en masse the largest quantity to vote as possible, which I don't think proofs or, 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 or necessarily lends itself to having the, the, the quality outcome, but rather to focus on the quality of the vote. Am I right? Exactly right. And the question is, now, the founders so were so wise, they knew not that people are stupid. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. That people simply didn't have the time and because of rational and because of rational ignorance had no intention of studying issues to the extent necessary to vote on them. They said, no, no. Citizens ultimately get to decide by picking electors and by electing members of the House so we get to directly decide but insofar as the president is concerned, it's too hard for somebody, for you and I, to decide who's going to be the better president. Oh, my goodness. How are we going to do that? So we vote on party because it's a shortcut. Uh, the founders didn't even want Americans to vote for senators. Let's remember, until 1913, senators were elected by state legislatures. They were not elected by the people. It was a change made in the 17th Amendment in, two, in 1913. By the way, 1913, a dark year for the Constitution. Direct election of senators in the 17th Amendment. What was the 16th? The income tax. 
That was a bad year, Craig. The Constitution took a dive in that year. So the, the founders knew not that voters were stupid, but that it was not in the best interest of the country to ask people who have no motivation to really study the issues all the time to pick something. It's like having people vote on gravity. I mean, are you in favor of gravity or not? Let's have an election. That's nonsense. And people, so people, understandably, when I use the phrase voter ignorance, I don't use it as a pejorative. It's rational ignorance. It makes sense not to study an issue. How many people here study foreign policy? Study whether we should be in NATO? Of course we don't. We have a life to lead. Well, and so we delegated Congress. We elect somebody to the Senate. You figure out NATO. I haven't got the time. I want to go play golf. Well, that's even with my my often a criticism of the um, the entire proposition process in California, which, which seems to me just an usurping of the real job that belongs to the state legislature and the suggestion that well, if we can't get the state legislature to do their job, we'll do it for them. And I've often said, well, if I'm going to have to vote on such matters, then and, you know, let me get part of their pay. Bob Zadek with us today. We're talking about the vote. Who should, who shouldn't, how complicated it is. And as we're learning, this push towards reducing ages and opening up more and more eligibility is perhaps not serving the country well. Now, let me be careful in saying I'm not suggesting that, uh, as we discussed earlier, uh, the passage of the 19th Amendment wasn't necessary or the passage of the 15th Amendment wasn't necessary. Uh, But what we are suggesting is we've created over years an environment that there is a not only a dumbed down electric just because of what's happened in, in education and critical thinking. Then you add to it the complexity of all the issues that we're being asked to decide upon. And then add to the mix propositions that were being decided were being forced to decide upon and it creates a scenario that runs quite contrarian to what the founding fathers envisioned we'll come back with some closing comments bob zadok with us tonight information about bob his books um, lots of resources on his website check him out at bobzadek.com b-o-b-z-a-d-e-k.com we'll get back to more of the conversation as lifeline continues and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. To my opening insights on the issue of voting, Bob Zadek, our guest today, online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. And, uh, Bob's, we were opining before the break the wisdom of our founding fathers, recognizing that all of this uh, is just too complicated too involved and therefore the reason why we hire people to make these decisions we hire them through our vote and more and more i guess is it any wonder that we're seeing a not only a significant um decrease in the quality of candidates i guess i wonder how much of that just runs part and parcel to this significant uptick in just the number of people that go into the voting booth and just click on any name that they see because at the end of the day they're not taking the time to study all of this and so we end up getting the kind of government we deserve you know you make a good point craig and i and i remember earlier in the show you said with understandable pride uh that 
uh, you have a duty to vote. You owe it as a, it's people died as Valley Forge, as they say, so you have the right to vote. And you value that and you spend it, you take it seriously. Here's a question, Craig, which I thought of when you made that statement. And I've never asked this question or made this proposal to anybody else. So if you had an, uh, an orchestra, you would, there would be a drum roll right now. But we'll live without the drum roll. Uh, here's my question. Craig, you are conservative, as you have identified on your show. So let's just say you're a pretty reliable conservative, although you do focus on issues. And there are, we can stipulate, progressives who are as careful as you are, as intent as you are, spend as much time as you do on studying the issues, but they will vote as predictably progressive as you vote progressive, uh, predictably conservative. Let's assume that for a hypothetical question, which I've never asked anybody before. Would you enter into an agreement with this predictable progressive that both of you agree, assuming it can be enforced, that neither one of you would ever vote again. You agree, um, you say to this progressive, and assuming it's enforceable, because I, I want to probe your mind and have the audience benefit from that, so assuming such a promise is enforceable, would you enter into a progressive, and both of you agree never to vote again? Now, for you, your, your vote is neutralized by that person anyway. So it's not like you're not supporting your candidate. You're not affecting the outcome of any issue you would vote on. Because this guy would neutralize your vote. He would vote against it. Will you enter into that agreement? Uh, I, I, will, I will give you the answer because the, the, the hypothetical that you suggest uh, has a strong parallel to a reality in life. I had a next-door neighbor for about 15 years that I knew was was very openly progressive and made no no bones about it and we would so oftentimes tease each other if we might run into one another on election day heading out the door and it depended upon who got to the line first but I would typically deliver the line uh, hey good to see you I'm on the way to the voting place to go cancel out your vote so it's exactly. not that far from the truth I have to say in all honesty and and in the 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 couple of minutes that we have I probably don't have adequate time here, Bob, to really give a serious thought to this, but to say that my my initial reaction is um, the sense of obligation, the habit, if you will, of voting, uh, in all fairness, I think is so deeply ingrained in my psyche. I think even if I had the ability to say, you know what, let's just not cancel each other out. You stay home, I stay home. It won't have any difference at the end of the day. I don't know that I could do that. Now, my response is, I take that as an admission, because what you have really said is, even though you're voting under my circumstances has no effect, it doesn't, it doesn't help your candidate or the issues at all, because we stipulated it's a tie, which means it's the empty inconsequential act of voting that has no effect upon your life that you are determined to do. It's a ritual without any substance. And I would answer the same way. I, every year, 
I try to get myself not to vote. I say to myself, it doesn't make a difference, Bob. Go knock yourself out. Stop reading op-eds. And you know, Craig, I can't. Just like you, I can't. But I will tell you, I acknowledge it's not a patriotic act. It's an act that I'm doing like recycling. It like makes me feel a little better, even though I don't think the earth just gained another 30 minutes of life because I didn't throw away my plastic bottle. Um, so I know it has no effect on anybody on earth, but yet I recycle. And I submit to you, voting is as significant as taking a plastic bottle and putting it in the recycling versus the trash. Now, the one area where I think things would get terribly complicated, and that is, let's carry this hypothetical to its extreme. If everybody said, you know, I was listening on the Internet in the Bay Area to uh, Bob and Craig on the radio, and this sounds like a brilliant idea. After all, it does seem to be a pretty senseless ritual, and I've done it for years, and seldom does my guy or gal get in office. If everybody made the same decision, then what would happen? I would be the only one left, and I'd get to pick the president. <laughs> I knew you'd... <laughs> That's my plan, Craig. You caught me. You caught me. Yep. <laughs> Bob, it's brilliant, and I and I and and in all all sincerity, I hope listeners have really captured part of the essence of the point that Bob has made here today. And you know, one of the reasons why I so gleefully enjoy these exchanges with him on the program is not only does he stretch all of our thinking and force us to think, uh, be outside of the box, outside of the routine, to really dig down and do some introspection as to why we think the way we think, why we live the way we live, why we vote the way we vote, is to really call all of us into taking some of these things that we do far more seriously, some others not as seriously as perhaps we do, and at the end of the day to really consider all that it means to be a participative member of this wonderful, oftentimes flawed, but wonderful experiment called Americanism. And Bob, I sure appreciate our dialogue today. I wish I had another. We need another 23 hours to continue this. But unfortunately, they're going to grab the shepherd's crook here in a moment and haul me out. But we'll do it again soon. Bob Zadek there. Information on Bob's work, his books, all kinds of goodies on his website. Check him out at BobZadek.com. B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. And I suspect we're going to be continuing this conversation in the very near future. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Ten minutes before the hour here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline. And every once in a while we get to share some good news of something right happening in the arena of um, legislation. And as you know, particularly a state like California, wow, it, you know, for, for every one smart piece of legislation they pass, it seems like 30 make their way to the governor's desk. Uh, sadly, this was a Similar case of bad legislation making its way to the governor's desk in our neighboring state of Nevada. 
But uh, good news is a bit of a veto by Nevada Governor Joe Lombardo and a major victory for life. Let's get the latest. Brad Dacus joins us now, president founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. Counselor, as always, great to have you with us. Tell us a bit about SB 239. Boy, this, from what I've read, this is a frightening, frightening proposition or uh, or bill. Yeah, it certainly was a, a frightening bill. And, you know, Craig, we have an office right there in Reno, Nevada, and our attorney, Emily Mimna, uh, was on top of this from day one. Uh, she testified against it, uh, filed a legal opinion letter opposing it, and uh, really weighed in heavy, uh, heavily against it because we knew how, how high the stakes were. You see, this would make it easy for someone just by mail. They could order these death pills and kill themselves. Uh, you know, it would be sanctioned by the government uh, when it comes to you know prior counseling requirements. Oh no, um, not there. Uh, you know, it's just uh, very subjective. Uh, it's just a determination that they have less than six months. Of course, we know with medicine that that's very ambiguous and inaccurate. Uh, in fact, I know of a woman who was actually living in in the Reno area uh, not that uh, long ago, and she was told she had three months to live. Instead of uh, you know thinking about how to kill herself, uh, she went ahead and signed up for a trial of a, of a new drug. Uh, it bought her over two years to her lifespan where she lived fruitfully and productively. So this is a very, uh, it was very dangerous. Um, it was just basically to exterminate people as quickly as possible uh, who had some kind of serious, potentially terminal uh, disease. And uh, we're just very glad that we, along with others, were able to defeat this. We at Pacific Justice Institute uh, look at this as a major win because we, because of the governor. It passed the legislature, but the governor vetoed it. And uh, that's, uh, that's very important. It just shows you how important it is for, for uh, people to elect the right people to get to the position of governor. And so particularly important, too, because this was a situation where there were virtually no guardrails at all. And I have to tell you, I recently watched an interview with a woman that is in her 30s who has dealt with uh, anorexia virtually her entire life. And she recently went public with her desire to terminate her life, stating that she didn't she did not want to get better because in her mind, getting better would equate to eating. And eating, of course, is part of the uh, the, the whole uh, uh, psychosis related to anorexia was just something that she felt was, was so abhorrent. You see the poor woman interviewed on television. She is as thin as a rail. The only thing standing between her uh, and her ability to get better is her lack of mental capacity, emotional capacity to 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 accept the cure, which means to start eating properly. And she's talking about terminating her life. And I think to myself, laws like this in a state like Arizona, where all the guardrails are down, you can request the drugs, get them prescribed, obtained, and all take them in the same day. So often, I think the lesson here learned, Counselor, is that it's it's not just people who are dealing with life-threatening consequences who don't want to go the, through the pain of, of a terminal illness and would rather short-circuit that whole process. But a lot of times there are people that are just emotionally or mentally not well that look for an easy way out. And these are also people that need to have their lives protected. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it just 
uh, would have been so easy for for people to want to you know basically commit suicide uh, through this uh, approach and to assisted suicide uh, would have been very very problematic. And, you know, they people were able to get would be able to get these suicide pills without even an, an in person office visit. I mean, that's it's um, it's 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 that uh, you know outrageous. And it's a total devaluation of, of the value of life itself and in human life. Uh, mind you, medical procedure allows in all 50 states for doctors who have someone there, you know, dying, uh, who's like, you know, lung cancer, they're gasping for breath, and the doctor can say, you know, uh, you know, you may have one, two weeks left of living, you're going to be gagging and just, you know, struggling to, to have, you know, to breathe. We'll give you as much oxygen, but it's going to be very torturesome next seven days. You want us to just give you increase your morphine to take you out of, you know, this ongoing misery. That's different than what led than legislation like this, which is people who have lives and have the ability to experience life simply cutting it short uh, under the pretext that uh, under a speculation of how much longer they, they have. Um, and it's and it's a very like I say it's a cheapening of life, and it's done with the motivation by hospitals, the medical profession, which is to uh, reduce expenses. Uh, the final you know few weeks and days in a hospital is the most expensive medical time of our life. Um, if hospitals can just truncate that with immediate suicide, uh, they saved a lot. And unfortunately, that's where we are, and that's why we have to fight this. Absolutely. Counselor, before you let, I let you go, I've got uh, maybe 90 seconds here. I want to pivot to a topic that you and I spoke about offline the other day. We've been educating our listeners about what's been happening in Union City. We're there. The city council on a three-to-one vote recently approved the installation of a recreational marijuana store in an entirely residential area. I'm curious, given the fact that this is still a control drug and illegal at the federal level, why do the feds not step in and exercise greater control as opposed to letting states like California Colorado just run wild and allow our children to be exposed to all of this? Well, first it depends on who's in control of the executive branch because they're the ones who enforce the federal laws and this present uh, presidential administration is not one that uh, wants to do that. In fact, they're very supportive of uh, marijuana, promoting marijuana usage among all 50 states. So they're not doing their job to enforce the law, and that's part of the problem right there. But also, uh, there's municipal codes protecting uh, you know, c- communities where, ch- where children are, whether it's public schools or churches, uh, from uh, exposure to these kinds of places that also end up usually often harboring other kinds of drugs uh, in their vicinity. And uh, to protect kids, we at Pacific Justice stood up to uh, such a proposition in New York, excuse me, in, uh, in San Francisco once, and we got the, the, the marijuana pot shop halted because of its close distance to a local church without an active youth program. Uh, so people in these situations need to contact Pacific Justice Institute. Uh, make no mistake, we stand ready to go to bat for the, the parents and children. Uh, in these communities who do not want that kind of uh, very statistically dangerous 
and degenerative exposure. And we've got to, as local citizens and taxpayers and uh, concerned members of the community, stand up, have our voice be counted, and uh, don't let them run roughshod over you. Because believe me, a lot of these city councils, like in the case of Union City, they see dollar signs. They don't care about the violence. They don't care about the impact of drugs on children. All they want to do is get more money for their pet programs. And I think it's shameful and tragic. And as more and more is coming out about the dangers of marijuana, because we've seen such widespread use in states like Oregon, California, Colorado, I think we're going to eventually find out that like tobacco use, where it was endorsed by, you know, one out of five doctors endorse having a nice, uh, you know, XYZ cigarette, we're going to eventually find out that it's even far worse than tobacco consumption and change our tune. Hopefully we'll figure that out before it's too late. Our thanks to Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder, president of the Pacific Justice Institute, online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. They do a great work. Support what they do. pacificjustice.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.